All right, well, we're going to go ahead and get started here. I got, let me read you something real quickly, and I'll give you some historical information from the book of Ezra. I'm just going to read you uh, one, one little section from the book of Ezra here real quickly. Ezra 6.15, it says, Now the temple was finished on the third day, of the third month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. That was in the year 3489 Anno Mundi, which is 516 BC, and that was today. Today is the third month of the third of the month of Adar in Israel, and so what we just read from the book of Ezra actually happened uh, on that day so many years ago. And uh, so I thought I'd give you a little historical rendering here. And then before we do the sermon, I'd like to go ahead and read you the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, the Shulamite. The Song of Solomon's is divided between uh, different people speaking. You've got a uh, young Shulamite woman. You've got uh, the king, King Solomon, uh, also speaking. And then you have some friends that speak from time to time. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just read it. And as we get to each section, there's a little caption that will tell you who is speaking to who at the time. The Shulamite. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. And then the daughters of Jerusalem say, we will run after you. And the Shulamite says, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the daughters of Jerusalem say, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And then the Shulamite says, rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And then to her beloved, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And the beloved answers, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your necks with chains of gold. The daughters of Jerusalem say, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And the Shulamite responds, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. And the beloved says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And the Shulamite responds, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. The word of the Lord. All right, we got a little bit of wind today, and I only have one of my uh, paper clips, so I hope we don't have any trouble with this getting blown around. But today, we're going to uh, speak on Genesis 6, 14 through 22, which is the building of the ark. And so the question is, need an ark? Noah guy. <laughs> Noah guy, okay, anyway. <laughs> so the Bible, we all know, it's full of great and wonderful stories, and they excite our imagination but very few of the stories in the Bible are as memorable to the people of the world as that of Noah and the ark. There's almost no one that I know that can't repeat at least a little portion of the story. 
And at the same time as being exciting and memorable, it is also one of the very first stories that people discount as myth. And they just say, I can't believe that story. A guy named Mark Isaac has a website called talkorigins.org, and he has compiled flood stories, individual flood stories from around the world, including the Near East, Africa, Asia, Australia, the Pacific Islands, North America, Central America, and South America. In all and to date, he has recorded 264 individual flood stories for you to read about, and you can read them right online on talkorigins.org. The million-dollar question then concerning all of these individual flood stories is, did all of these stories originate from a real account and devolve into various myths, or did one myth evolve into many other myths? Which is more likely and why is what we need to ask ourselves. And obviously, even the answer to that question will be based on personal biases and what you already believe about the Bible. But the chances of 264 individual flood stories being there in the Bible and having a similar historical background must be more than mere chance. In addition to the direct stories about the myth, there are lots of other hints that a flood really occurred in human history. Uh, I was talking in Bible class last night, and Janice brought up that there are seashells at the top of the Grand Canyon. I mean, there's all kinds of archaeological and uh, uh, other evidences, biological evidences, that there really was a flood at some time in our past. And in addition to this, if you know that what the Chinese alphabet looks like, it's a pictorial alf alphabet. It's got these, rather than individual characters, it's got pictures in there. And in that Chinese alphabet, there are actually hidden references to the flood and other Genesis stories as well. And the interesting thing about that, and people in my Bible class know this, I've showed them those in the past, but the interesting thing about that is that they didn't know that those were in there until recently when somebody who was not Chinese found them. In other words, people will write a, uh, just a real quick example, I will write like um, Charlie is going to the store. And if you read that, you just simply read all of the the uh, sentence, Charlie is going to the store. You don't look at each letter and say C-H-A-R, oh, that's Charlie, and go on. Well, the Chinese, the same thing. They just write these things out the way that they write them out and um, without taking everything in individual context. But this person who was trained to learn Chinese later in life found out that these things about the flood are actually right in the accounts of the Chinese pictorial alphabet. And after finding those and you know, hearing about it myself, I asked my wife who can read the Chinese pictorial alphabet, is this correct? And she said, yes, yes. She went down each one of them and she said, these actually do refer to a flood story and they're hidden right in the open Chinese language. So it's, it's kind of an interesting mystery there. In the end though, we are left with faith and we are left with hope. Hope in the promises of our great, our awesome creator and faith in his word and that his promises are true. As the psalmist said so very long ago, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. So whether we believe that the story of Noah in the flood is true or not is actually irrelevant to whether the story is true. One thing is sure though, both Jesus and the apostles believed that it was true and they spoke of Noah and the flood as a real occurrence and a real person. Our faith in what 
they say, meaning Jesus and the apostles then, is only as strong as the faith we have in the story that they attest to. If we don't believe in the flood then, we have no reason to believe anything else that they say, Jesus or the apostles. Peter wrote this to us in his first epistle. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached in the spirits and to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So Noah, not only does Peter speak of Noah as real, but he speaks of the flood as real. And not just any flood, he speaks of a global flood in which only eight survivors came through it. But in this exact same passage that I read, he said that Christ died for our sins and that Christ was resurrected by the power of God. If the flood of Noah isn't true, then everything else that Peter says is suspect as well. It's totally unreliable, including the very resurrection that he mentions right in this verse. And we are left in this world without hope. That's all there is to it. Either we take Noah as an actual figure and the flood as a real account, or it's pointless for us to go on in our Christian walk. The Bible is a unified whole. And so to disregard any part of it, just take out any part that you don't like, it is to relegate the entire book to both a waste of time and just an unnecessary dust collection device. So when you sit, for example, in a church with a female pastor, which the Bible forbids, then you alone have to justify why you were there when you meet the Lord. And suppose you're having an illegitimate affair to somebody that you're not married to, then you alone will face the Lord and you will have to explain why. It's a unified whole and these little things that we say, well, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do this are actually very important to the Lord because this is his word. So today I wore my tie. It's got all the books of the Bible on, not all of them. But if you just say, I'm not going to take it, the book of Colossians is real and take that out, then this entire thread just falls apart. It's a unified whole and we need to keep that in our proper perspective as we walk through our Christian life and we evaluate the pages of the Bible and the individual verses, which sometimes we dislike. Our text verse for today says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will this coming of the Son of Man be. That's the words of Jesus himself. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Which brings us to our first thought, which is building the ark. Now, it is not known in the Bible how Noah was told to build the ark, only that he was told to do so. But two things we know and they are clarified in the New Testament, is that he built the ark by faith and that his instructions were because of a divine warning. So let's read what the author of Hebrews says about the building of the ark. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
A guy that was closing in on 500 years of age is told that the entire world is going to be destroyed by the flood and that he needed to get ready for it. The author of Hebrews says that he was moved with godly fear. In other words, God had spoken and he had best not dither in getting ready for what he was told was coming. And today there are jillions of people in the world who have been told exactly the same thing. We just read part of from what Jesus said, that judgment is coming. We have been given the exact same divine warning. It's called the word of God. And we have exactly the same choice. We can either have godly fear or we can have dithering and denial. Either the Bible is true or the Bible is not true. So who will become the heir of righteousness in this generation? Noah's divine warning had arrived, alerting him to what was coming. And the divine instructions are as follows, verses 14 through 16. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So how big was the ark according to modern measurements? We have a historically reliable estimate that a cubit was from about 18 inches to 21 inches in length, depending on whether they were using the standard cubit or what's known as the royal cubit. This means that the ark, depending on which cubit was used, was from 450 to 540 feet in length. It was between 75 to 90 feet wide, and it was from 45 to 55 feet high. That is five stories tall. This then would have been a ship of 1.5 to 2.7 million cubic feet of space. Anything this large would have obviously required immense carpentry skills, even if it wasn't lavishly finished. If it was only used to protect the life in it and not for any other reason, it could have been constructed just as a big box without any sails or without any rudder or anything else. But no matter what, it would have needed to be completely seaworthy in construction. The word used for ark here is used 28 times in 25 verses of the Bible, and it is only used in two accounts and for two reasons. Noah's ark and the little ark that sailed Moses down the Nile River. Those are the only two times that this word is used. The word in Hebrew is teba, and it implies a vessel of indeterminate shape. Unlike the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the shape of a coffin, this is just an indeterminate shape. And a different word is used for the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of Noah. In other words, it was just a big hollow ship, and it was used for people, animal, goods, or whatever else was on the Ark. But beyond that, we cannot assign any particular shape to it. The shape, then, is left up to the imagination of the reader, which makes what I think a very nice mental present from God because we can make our own little imaginations about what this thing looked like. But no matter what it looked like, the size is given that it means that it would have been perfectly capable of holding all of the people and all of the animals that it was asked to hold, and it would have had enough room for a year's worth of food easily. In all, it would have been approximately 81,062 tons. This ship then would have been the largest ship ever built for the next 4,100 years 
it would, was not until the late 19th century that ships this large would again have sailed on the ocean's waters. Along with getting the size instructions, he was told to build it of gopher wood. Unfortunately, this word seems to predate the Hebrew alphabet or the Hebrew uh, language, and nobody is really sure what gopher wood is, but a good guess is cypress. The word for cypress in the Greek language is kapurasas, and in its shortened form is kupar, which sounds a whole heap like gopher. So this is a possibility, and it is also a reasonable possibility, because cypress is a non-corruptible wood, which would have been impervious to bugs and it would have been impervious to worms. Lots of other suggestions have been made, but just like the shape of the ark, we don't have anything more to go on. And I will give you my personal opinion on the cypress based on my grandmother's house that was right down the road growing up. It's still there, but it's been refashioned since then. Some people went in and gutted it and made it bigger. But she had termites in her house. It was a pecky cypress panel inside the house, but the frame of the house was Florida pine. And she got termites into the house and the termites ate all of the Florida pine studs behind the wall and it left, it, they ate right up to the cypress and they stopped. So you could push the whole wall over because there was nothing supporting it. But that is what was needed was to have a type of wood like this. And the reason why is because the ark, you figure the flood is coming on the world. You've got all of the animals of the world that are dying, all of the humans that are dying, they're all decaying and all of the sea creatures would be out there eating and they'd be going exponentially in growth. And so they would get right up to the ark and they'd say, hmm, we're gonna have this too. But if it was covered with pitch and it was made of something like cypress, they would have left it alone. So cypress is a very good guess on this. At the same time, Noah was told to build a window for the ark. Again, there are several possibilities of what this window looks like. He was told to finish it a cubit from above. And so some drawings, if you notice, they'll have one giant long window going down the middle of the ark or other drawings will have a window up above the deck of the ark, about a cubit tall. And then other drawings will have it about uh, from the, the uh, top of the deck going down about a cubit. We can't really be certain which one is correct. Once again, we're just going on uh, very limited information that he was given to build this thing. But uh, it did have a fixed window in it, all right? Because at one point he was told to open the window. Whatever it was though, however it was shaped, it kept out the rain, it vented the ark of all of the lovely smells that certainly uh, uh, built up in there, and it allowed for you know life to go on in a general way, having that one very long window on the very top of it. And the window that he could open was a fixed window, certainly, and it was probably of a solid material, whether it was some type of crystal or whether they had the ability to make glass or whatever. He could open it, he could look out of it. but. The next thing concerning the construction of the ark is that he was told to cover it with pitch, both inside and out. The word in Hebrew for pitch here is the word kafar, and it gets its meaning from being a covering. But another use of this exact same word in the Bible is when it is used for the price of paying redemption. Now, I don't mean to stretch the meaning of this particular word too far, but isn't this exactly what Noah was doing when he was building the ark? He was using a covering to save his life from the destruction. So this may be a veiled reference to the work of Jesus Christ who covers us with his blood. It covers our sins and then he grants us his garments of righteousness or the white garments that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. 
And then finally, in the construction, Noah was told to make it with lower, second, and third decks. And some people believe that this is a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is definitely stretching things too far. The reason why is because each member of the Trinity is fully God. But each of the decks on the ship are only fully decks on a ship. They're not the entire ship. In other words, just as an egg is a bad example of the Trinity, so is the concept of a deck with three ships. A triangle is not a triangle if you take away one of its sides, but the ship is still a ship if you remove one of its decks. The decks then are not a picture of the Trinity, but they show a wise use of this immense ship, and they also would have added to the structural integrity of it, keeping it from collapsing on itself. And they would also have allowed for a very logical uh, distribution of the cargo once it was put onto the ship. So looking at the construction of the ark, we can make some pertinent connections to our own lives. Noah was given very, very explicit instructions about the size of the ark, about the number of levels in it, the type of wood to be used, and so on. And in the same way, God has given us very, very specific instructions for our own lives. It's called the Holy Bible. We'll see a little later that Noah followed these instructions that he was given exactly, just as they were received. However, there were lots of things that were not recorded in the instructions. They don't tell anything about what he could not do, only the things that he was to do. It doesn't say that Noah couldn't bring any personal items onto the ark, and therefore that allowed him to do it. If Noah wanted to bring along a board game like, like Monopoly, he could have done that. Or if he wanted to bring on his favorite orchids, he could have done that. Or if he wanted to bring along his favorite horse and buggy, he could have done that. In the same way, the Bible gives us very explicit instructions for our life. There are some things we can do and some things we can't do. Christians are supposed to marry Christians. But it doesn't say we have to stick with any race or any uh, color or any hairstyle or anything like that. The Bible tells us which foods are acceptable. But it doesn't mandate that we eat any particular foods. In other words, I'm not forced to eat tomatoes when I don't like tomatoes. And I am not restricted from eating alligator tail when I really like alligator tail. This is what the Bible allows. So what we need to do is we need to be obedient to what God mandates. We need to stay away from what God forbids and we need to enjoy the freedom of what is left unstated. If we can do these things, then we are walking by faith in a world which is lovingly given us to enjoy and participate in just as long as it's in accordance with his will. That's all that God asks of us. Now, while we're looking at these verses, which detail how the ark was built, we can see that it resembles a type or a picture of the way God has ordained worship throughout the ages. The ark was made, as I said, of an incorruptible wood. In the same way, all of the tabernacle furniture, which was out in the desert, was made of incorruptible wood. Both of these represent the incorruptible body of Jesus Christ, which is explicitly said in the New Testament. And it also anticipates the incorruptible nature of the Christians when he comes and glorifies them. There was only one door into the ark, just as there is only one door leading into the tabernacle, which is the dwelling of the living God. And there is only one way to be a member of the church, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. In the book of John, he actually calls himself the door. I am the door. Our worship then is directed to and through Jesus Christ as the Lord of the church. And he is the one that brings us close to the creator because of what he did, not because of what we did. 
and on the ark were many types of animals. And in the church, there are people of every race and every color and every culture. There are Jews and there are Gentiles, which is symbolized by the clean animals and the unclean animals, all of which are sanctified by the same Lord. In the book of Acts, Peter had a vision where a sheep came down from heaven and on it were all kinds of four-footed animals. There were uh, creeping things, there were wild beasts of the earth and there were birds of the air and all of the other things that were unclean to the Jewish people. And he was told to eat what he saw. And being a Jew, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. But God told him that he should not call anything unclean which God has cleansed. The symbolism is given as a reference to the Gentile people of the world. All are cleansed by the same perfect Savior. And all are prepared to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. On the ark there were three decks. And there was a single window on the top deck. In the tabernacle in the wilderness there were three divisions. The first division was the outer court where the sacrifices to sin were offered. The second is where the bread, the menorah, and the incense were. And then you get into the most holy place and that is where the Ark of the Covenant is. On the ship, there were these three decks and there was that single window there. So it's kind of making the similar parallel. In our worship, we start at that first deck and we come to the final sacrifice, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is also where we are washed and where we're sanctified in our walk with Jesus. On the second deck, we commune with God through the bread of his body, through the power of his Holy Spirit, which is a picture by the menorah, and we also have the offering of prayers to God, which is pictured by the incense, Jesus being our mediator between God and man. And then we come to the third deck, where we enter the most holy place, where we commune directly with God in his presence. And there is a window open there, and that's where our new lives begin in earnest. The, the, at that point, when the window opens up, we unite directly with God through the person of Jesus Christ in the purity of worship and in the perfection of holiness, which he bestows upon us. The day is coming for all believers who will simply and by faith allow Jesus Christ to come into them and to cleanse them. And this is all symbolized by this one ship floating on this massive ocean. That brings us to our second point today, which is the Lord has spoken. Verses 17 and 18. And behold, I myself am bringing the floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. The floodwaters were coming because of the wickedness of man. We talked about that last week and not a very happy subject, but there is no other way to interpret this. And it implies that God is behind it as judgment. As disturbing as it might sound though, nothing else can be interpreted from the disasters which come on the world today too. Each of them is a result of the judgment upon sin. And this does not mean that good people are immune from this. If I'm a Christian and I'm living next to a non-Christian and a hurricane comes, I am just as likely to be swept up by it. It is because of the result of man's overall disobedience that these things come on the earth. Whether you're talking about hurricanes or whether you're talking about earthquakes or whether you're talking about any other calamity. Let me give you one example which may help all of us to look at disasters a little bit differently in the future. The Lord has spoken, and we know this from the Bible, 
in very specific ways. And in one of them, he has spoken that he has given the land of Israel to the people of Israel. America has long been Israel's main ally and defender. And many times when we have worked to harm Israel's rights to that land, disasters have resulted directly in our nation because of those policies. I'm going to give you about 15 of them. It's going to take a minute to get through these. But listen to how these things work in our own nation and in our own lives. On October 30th, 1991, President Bush, the senior Bush, H.W., he opened the Madrid Conference with an initiative for Middle East Peace Plan, which involved giving away a portion of Israel's land. On that same day, the perfect storm hit America's East Coast. And then on August 23rd, 1992, that Madrid Conference was moved to Washington, D.C., and the peace talks resumed. And on that exact same day, Hurricane Andrew produced $30 billion of damage and left 180,000 Floridians homeless. August 23rd, 1992, I just read that one. January 16th, 1994, President Clinton met with Syria's president in Geneva. They talked about a peace agreement with Israel that included giving up the Golan Heights. Less than 24 hours later, the Northridge earthquake hit California and became America's second most destructive natural disaster behind Hurricane Andrew. March to April of 1997, the combination of PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat touring America and Clinton rebuking Israel for not giving away her land for peace coincided with some of the worst tornadoes and flooding in U.S. history. The day that Arafat landed in America, the day he landed, powerful tornadoes devastated huge sections of the nation. They ripped across Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Arafat's American tour also coincided with storms in the Dakotas, which resulted in the worst flooding of the century. When Arafat finished his tour and he left the U.S., the storm stopped. September 27th and 28th of 1998, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright worked on the final details of an agreement in which Israel would give up 13% of Yesha. And the same day, Hurricane George, which we felt here, hit the Gulf Coast with 110 mile an hour winds and it had winds that went up to 175 miles an hour. It stalled over the Gulf Coast and that added to the disaster what was happening. On September 28th, which is the second day of this, Clinton actually met with Arafat and Prime Minister Netanyahu at the White House to finalize that land deal. Later, Arafat addressed the United Nations about declaring an independent Palestinian state by May of 1999. At the exact same time, Hurricane George was pounding the Gulf Coast and it cost over a billion dollars in damage. The exact time that Arafat got on his plane and took off from the U.S., the storm began to dissipate. On October 15th through 22nd, 1998, Arafat and Prime Minister Netanyahu met at the Y River Plantation in Maryland to continue the same talks. On October 17th, rains and tornadoes hit southern Texas. The San Antonio area was deluged with 20 inches of rain in a single day. The rains and the floods in Texas continued until October, October 22nd, exactly when he was leaving, and then they subsided. 25% of Texas was ravaged, and it had over a billion dollars worth of damage. May 3rd, 1999, Clinton wrote to Arafat and encouraged him about the aspirations for his own land. 
and that the Palestinians had a right to determine their own future on their own land and that they deserve to live free today, tomorrow, and forever. And that same day, the most powerful tornado system ever to hit the United States of America until that time swept across Oklahoma and Kansas. And then we all remember how recent this one was, October 29th of 2005, exactly one week after Israel's Prime Minister Ariel Sharon completed the forcible evacuation of Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip, done at our behest, Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, and it caused immense destruction. We all know that 80% of New Orleans was left completely underwater, and it may have been the worst natural disaster ever to hit the United States of America. Each of these disasters cost America an immense amount of money, and many lives were lost because of individual foreign policy decisions that were directed against Israel's best intentions. However, over the past three years, we have seen it become the overall policy of America to work against Israel. Instead of individual disasters which cost billions of dollars, we have gone into economic decline and it has cost us trillions of dollars. The only way that we will reverse what is happening right here is to restore leadership to America which will support and defend Israel's right to exist without applying pressure on them to establish a Palestinian state. And such is the case with every disaster and every calamity. They are, in the end, a result of us working against God and relentlessly rejecting Him and His offer of peace, which is so simple. And it comes by the marvelously simple demonstration of faith in what He has done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that this is true, that the Bible teaches this, Amos 3, 6 says, If disaster has come upon a city... Has the Lord not caused it? And then in Joel 3, 1, if you want to read something, it says that God is going to bring all of the nations of the world down to what is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That is the valley where the Lord judges. And he is going to judge those nations. And it says specifically the reason why there. It says, because they have divided my land. The land of Israel is God's land. And he has sovereignly given it to one group of people. When they are in obedience, they live in the land. When they are in disobedience, they are taken out of the land. But that is God's land and he has given to Israel. And we work against that at our own peril. Going back to the Noah account now, God clearly indicated that he was bringing the destruction upon the world because of man's wickedness. It is his world and every form of life on it belongs to him. But despite this calamity that was coming, God promised to establish his covenant with Noah. This is the very first time that the term covenant is used in the Bible. God was going to destroy the world, but he would save Noah through the flood. Noah then was expected to obey the command and to build the ark. When it was finished, he was to enter the ark with his wife, with his three sons and their wives. These were the terms that were set out for Noah. In other words, this covenant was binding and it was a covenant of life but it was also a covenant of death. Noah was not allowed to bring anybody else. I'm sure he had brothers and sisters and other people on the world. He couldn't bring them. He couldn't bring his friends. He couldn't bring his doctor and he couldn't even bring his lawyer. God's covenant was established and obedience was expected. And how does this apply to us today? Jesus established the new covenant in his blood and it is just as binding on us 
is what God did for Noah. He has set down the conditions and everybody who will obey it will be saved. And that brings us to a very obvious question. Saved from what? When somebody comes up and asks, are you saved? They usually don't even know what they're asking. The impression is that being saved means that you are going to heaven. But this is not at all what being saved means. The term saved in this context is used 106 times in the Bible, and it is always, always referring to being rescued out of something or from something, not for something. What then does it mean to be saved? Exactly what it meant for Noah, that we would not perish when God judges. Paul explains what salvation means in chapter 5 of the book of Romans. Here's what he says. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That means you and me, people that have sinned in their lives. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, each one of us, born in sin and sinning all our lives, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The book of Ephesians could not be any clearer that it says that we are children of wrath by nature. And yet God, in his own love, his own demonstration of grace and mercy, sent Jesus Christ to reconcile us to him through his own son. Salvation is a work of God. It is accomplished by God. And it is done for God's people and for nobody else. The salvation is, as Paul says, from God's wrath. The Bible says we are enemies of God, and yet he accomplishes this work necessary to restore us to him. And then he asks that what he, for us to believe that what he has done will work out on our behalf. Getting saved is not going to heaven. Going to heaven is a result of getting saved. And that brings us to our second thought, or our third thought today, two by two. Now, I gotta tell you, it never ceases to amaze me what hang-ups people have with the Bible. One strong Christian who is very close to me struggles with, or maybe struggled with, I don't know if this was ever resolved with that particular person, the notion that Samson killed 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey all by himself. All right. Another family member says that he simply cannot believe in the virgin birth. I've heard people doubt that the Nile really turned to blood. Somebody asked me that question right out here one time when I was having my little sign out here and answering Bible questions. And others cannot believe in a literal six-day creation of the earth. There are all kinds of things that people find too hard to stomach in the Bible. Just this week, a guy that I went to seminary with, a very nice person, emailed me and he said, Charlie, I need help. I'm struggling. He said, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in uh, Jesus Christ being the only way to heaven. I believe in this and this and this. He says, but I am struggling with the concept of Jesus Christ being fully God. Help me with that. And I got to tell you what, I 
stopped everything right then. This was first thing in the morning. Normally, I go through all of my emails, and I save the harder ones for later, and I get all of my Bible verse sent out, and I, I do everything that I do in the same routine every day, and I got that, and I thought, this is one of the most important things in my life is to tell people what they need to know so that they don't have these struggles, and so I typed up pages of information, and I sent it to him, and I said, if there's anything I can answer, call me, email me. We will get this resolved with you, because doubts do come in. And man, I love this guy, and I want him to not struggle with this particular issue, all right? Some other believers may accept the overall premise of the Bible, but struggle with those little details I mentioned. Or other people, non-believers, may reject the entire Bible because of the smaller details or because of the overall premise, which is Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God. That is a very big stumbling block to many people, but that's what the Bible teaches. Recently, I had lunch with someone who was asked to talk with me about Jesus. The first thing that he asked was about evolution. The next thing he brought up was that he simply could not believe that God brought the animals two by two to the Ark of Noah. Doubts begin in all kinds of places, and that's why we have these sermons and these Bible studies is to get us through our doubts. Verse 19 through 21, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Now, while God was destroying the world, he was going to save the world. And Noah's ark, believe it or not, was how he was going to do this. If you find this a clumsy way of doing the job, then think about it from God's perspective. What would be the very best way of accomplishing this particular task while still maintaining faith as the overall premise of being right with him? If you think about it from that perspective, the ark is the perfect tool of employing his saving grace while at the same time demonstrating his righteous judgment. Just imagine the sight of Noah out there working day after day after day in the sight of the people building a ship where there was no ocean to be found. And as nutty as it seemed to those around him, he was gathering animals into one location like a zoo. God directed them to him and Noah made things ready for them. Because it says the animals will come to you, speaking to Noah, we can assume that the animals, any animals that didn't come to Noah were not meant to be a part of the new order of things. In other words, if there are species which became extinct at the flood, it was because they were not meant to continue on. Maybe they, the world in the different state after the flood would be incompatible with the new ecosystem. You know, I don't know. I'm just saying that we have extinct animals, and that's a very good thought about why we don't have those animals today. And what would prompt a person to store up food while everything was going along in its normal fashion? According to Jesus' own words, which I read you earlier, in the days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. But Noah, by faith, built an ark and he prepared for what was yet unseen and what was yet unimaginable. One of my close friends who attends here at Church on the Beach from time to time stores up all kinds of food in her house in case something goes bad in our, our society. I know another person who gets 
all kinds of spare fish nets. He's got guns, he's got ammunition, he's got tools, and he's got other th things set aside just in case the ball drops. Now, why are these people doing this? Are they nutty survivalists that are anticipating the overthrow of our country? The answer is no. They are faithful believers in God's word who have looked around at the world today. They've read the prophecies from thousands of years ago, and they see clearly that those prophecies point to the current time. Israel, which is the key of all future prophecy, is back in the land. And the nations are lining up against Israel, just as the Bible says that it would. It does not take a rocket scientist to see what's happening. It takes a believer in God's word and one who lives by faith, as the Bible says. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And so we, too, will be commended for hearing and for believing God's word, taking to heart the very things that seem incredible to us. And when the ball drops, not if, but when the ball drops, the people of the world are going to cry for relief, and it will not come. Such are the workings of a righteous, just, and holy creator. And that brings us to our fourth thought today, which is Noah's obedience. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. This is our final verse today and the final verse of chapter 6. It is a verse of obedience to the master's word. And in fact, it repeats the word did, both in English and in the Hebrew. It says it twice in order to emphasize Noah's obedience. God gave the instructions. Noah obeyed. And not only did he build the ark, gather the animals and store up the food, but he was also a preacher of righteousness. It says that right in the book of 2 Peter. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. During the entire time that Noah built the ark, he preached to the people of the world about righteousness and about the judgment to come. And he did it by the Spirit of Christ. However long it took him to build the ark, he continued with his preaching. Some of the people on the earth may have responded to it. We have no idea. If they did, they died before the flood, just like his uh, grandfather Methuselah and his father Lamech. But out of every other person that was on earth, not one was found worthy to join Noah on the ark. And the call has been ringing out ever since. Yes, there is a God. Yes, he has offered you forgiveness. But the call has been rejected far, far more often than it has been accepted. Instead of people accepting the purpose of the nation of Israel back in the ancient days and calling on Jehovah like Ruth the Moabitess did, most of the nations around her waged war against her. And finally, even the people of Israel left behind the truth. When Jesus came, he walked among his people, fewer believed and more rejected. And 38 years later, after his cross and his resurrection, which is the most validated occurrence in human history, they were overthrown and they were dispersed. Since that time, the church has continually faltered. It's failed to proclaim the word, but each generation has picked up and renewed the battle and progressed onward. However, the world is moving further away from the gospel. It is not getting closer to it. Enoch, as we saw before, was taken before the flood and the church will be taken before the day of the Lord. Noah was carried through the flood and Israel will be carried through the tribulation period. 
And when Jesus returns, he will return to Israel. He will reign in her midst for a thousand years during the kingdom age. Next week, we're going to look over Genesis 7, 1 through 24, which is the flood of Noah. I'd hope that you will take time this week to read those verses and ponder what they say in anticipation of another church on the beach, minus Linda, who will be in rehab. Noah was a prophet speaking the word of the Lord. In righteousness, he pled with the world's people. But they were having fun and his message made them bored. They were all going astray, wayward little sheeple. Noah was a carpenter building an ark to keep him secure. He fashioned it from gopher wood where no ocean was to be found. The people thought he was nuts. Oh, but he was so sure. And unlike all the people, Noah wasn't drowned. He built the ark bigger than a football field. 300 by 50 by 30 was the ark's size. Against the strongest waves, the ship wouldn't yield. And safely from the flood was his obedient prize. The ark had three decks, a window, and a door. All that hammering and cutting must have made him sore. Noah was a farmer gathering lots of food. He stored it up for years, getting ready for the flood. And while he built the ark, the animals came his way. He had twos of every kind getting ready for that day. Birds and animals and creeping things to be kept alive. Each came two by two after their own kind. What about bees? Two don't make a hive. Maybe he brought more because he had honey on his mind. Noah did everything just as he was supposed to do. He prepared every detail, getting ready for the big day. But as he did, people mocked him and said, Hey, Noah, you're cuckoo. But Noah kept on preaching and gathering in the hay. Noah was a man of faith, living not by sight. His life is recorded as a righteous soul. Everything he was asked to do, he did just right. And so his deeds are recorded in God's eternal scroll. It's faith that God's, God loves in the people of the earth. But the faith must be directed to him and to his word. It is Jesus who alone will grant you the new birth. So just like Noah, please believe the message you have heard. Hallelujah and amen. You know, the Bible says that we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God and that we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. We're going to go back to work tomorrow. We're going to be working and we're going to be earning our wages, something that is due us. And we are due death and separation from God because of the lives that we have lived. But the Bible says, and I read you this earlier, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Charlie Garrett, 36 years old and still sinning and not knowing anything about God's righteousness, it says he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And then it says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all that God asks. For salvation to be affected in the human life, we just simply need to say, I cannot save myself and I need a redeemer to do it for me. And God says that he will grant you his righteousness. He will cover you with his garments of white and he will give you eternal life when you don't deserve it. And if that is not grace and if that is not mercy, I don't know what it is. And if anybody is listening today and has never accepted Jesus Christ, the simple, simple act of faith, calling on him as Lord, I would ask that they do that today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet out here in the Green Cathedral to hear some thoughts from your word and to go over the story of this man of faith who lived by faith and was saved through the flood while the rest of the world perished. And we know that those terrible times are coming again where the world is going to be judged. And we ask that you would cleanse us of our sins, purify our hearts, and just lead us to the rock that is higher than us, the rock who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And let us drink from that spiritual water that came from it. 
And Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gift of eternal life, something that we have not merited, but which you have graciously given to us out of your love, out of your beauty, out of your perfection, and out of your holiness. We thank you for that gift, and we praise you for it in the beautiful and exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.